Well, I invite you to turn in your copies of God's Holy and Inspired Word with me to Romans 14. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12 of Romans 14 as we continue to uh, reflect upon the significance of the name of this church, Grace Covenant, and what that means for us in our identity and calling as a people of the covenant of grace, what that means for us and who we are, what it means for us and who we are called to be in the way that we live towards the Lord and towards one another, and what that means for how we live towards those who are outside the walls of this church. Romans 14, the title of the sermon this morning is Grace Covenant, Gracious Living Through a Judgment of Charity. Last week, as we looked at Romans 12, we looked at this overall concept of if, if we are ambassadors of God's grace, which we had looked at in 2 Corinthians 5, then being ambassadors of God's grace means we are called towards gracious living. And we looked at a whole slew of really important specific ways that we as God's people live graciously as ambassadors of grace. Now what we're going to do here in Romans 14 is really zero in on one specific um, uh, uh, discipline that the people of God are desperately in need of exercising towards one if we are going to live graciously as ambassadors of God's grace. Romans 14, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than the other, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats eats in honor of the Lord, since he has given thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us this morning as we have already 
responded to your, your gracious invitation into your presence and been honest about our ongoing need for your grace to help us in our sanctification as those who still struggle with sin. We thank you that you have heard our prayers and we ask now that you would speak very specifically to our hearts and minds through these words that were spoken in the past, that were written to address an issue in the past, and yet are words through which you are still speaking presently to us now because we continue to need to hear them as those who continue to perpetuate this wrong way of relating to one another where we think that we are attempting to defend your honor when what we are actually doing is often just hedging our prejudices and our preferences. And so help us to hear in Jesus' name. Amen. We are called as the people of the covenant of grace, as those who have experienced the fullness of God's grace that has come to us in Jesus Christ, as those who, uh, having experienced it, having embraced that grace on an ongoing, regular basis, are called to embody that grace in the way that we live towards God, we live towards ourselves. How do we live towards one another? And we are called as a people who have experienced and embraced this grace, who are, who are, who are called to... to um, um, then, you know, who have embodied this grace, we are then called to extend that grace. We, we, we take the grace of the Lord as we have taken it in and we enflesh that grace. And then we go out into this world and we don't just expect people who are fallen, who are blinded, who are separated from God's grace to just know God's grace. They have to see it. Beloved, that's what you are. You are the billboard of that grace that draws attention away from their problems, away from your problems, and to direct them towards the one who can do something about their problems. That's what it means to embody this grace, to extend this grace. A lot of times, I think what happens is we just kind of expect people, especially in the Bible Belt, to just know about that grace. We expect people who have grown up around the church to, to have embraced it. We expect them to have understood it. We expect them to embody that. We expect, expect, expect... And what happens is a lot of us, especially right now, are experiencing a lot of unmet expectations in the way that we are experiencing relationships in a world right now that has become so fractured and so divided that the tribes that exist in our culture, don't just exist in the culture, those tribes are existing in the church. There has been no greater time 
that I can remember in my own personal walk with Jesus Christ where there has been a bigger challenge to authentically live graciously towards one another than right now. It is so much easier right now or so, it's so difficult right now to truly welcome and accept one another, as Paul talked about last week in Romans 12, to welcome and accept one another sacrificially. Key word there, sacrificially, according to gospel realities instead of cultural preferences and values where we truly welcome and live graciously towards one another through grace-fueled humility, through grace-fueled service, through grace-fueled love, through grace-fueled blessing rather than retaliation. That's what he was talking about in Romans 12. Instead, right now, it is so much easier without doing it on purpose, without consciously doing this, right? It is so much easier right now to fall into the trap of evaluating, judging, and criticizing one another instead of welcoming, accepting, and loving those around us. And this is true even for Christians within the church who have a shared life in Jesus Christ. It is so much easier to see the faults and weaknesses of others because they are often so obvious, whereas our own faults and weaknesses are often so hidden to us and we are blinded to them. As a result right now, it has become very prevalent to be looking outwards and assessing everyone around us, evaluating them. When, when, when they just said this, were they really trying to say this other thing and were trying to hide it? When he just said this, does he really mean that or, right? There's a whole lot of buzzwords flying around right now in our culture, in our politics. There's a whole lot of disagreements right now, right? And as people say things, a word that a year ago would have been innocuous, would have been a word that we wouldn't think twice about can be a word now that we seize up. I've got to really zero in. Is he, what is he trying to say here? And not because of wanting to really understand the person, but for knowing, okay, what argument do I load into the holster and pull out and pull the trigger when he gets done? The reality is, it is so much easier to see the faults and weaknesses of others. I see yours, and I know for sure that you see mine. 
The question is, how do we respond to one another in light of these weaknesses, right? How do we respond to one another in light of not only the fact that you have weaknesses and I have weaknesses, how do we respond to the fact that it's so much easier for me to see yours than for me to see mine? You see, what is happening here in Romans 14 is there is a very definite, specific problem that has developed within the churches of Rome. And what we see in this discussion unfolding is there is controversy in these churches over diet and days. And the question that is before this church is, what do we do? What do we do when we have these disagreements? Do do we avoid one another? Do we talk about one another behind our backs? Do we go around trying to control and manipulate one another to agree with us? Does it mean that we become justified in becoming negative and critical and argumentative? Or do we act nice? in order to draw men so that then we can pounce and fix them, right? Do we ignore? Do we just ignore the faults and weaknesses? Do we? Do we just say, oh, bless his heart? For those visiting us who are not from the South, that can mean a million different things. But well, there's one consistent thing that it does mean. It means I'm judging you as being wrong and I'm indifferent about it. Right? See, it's difficult in a culture like ours right now for a church that takes God's truth so seriously to know how to interact with one another when it appears to us at every turn that these accepted truths that we have held, that we have lived according to with people who claim the name of Christ along with us, those who have our same denominational affiliation, all of a sudden everything looks crazy and things are going in opposite directions. How do we respond? Well, Paul tells us He tells us that we genuinely receive and welcome one another, but not to fix or control each other. We genuinely are to receive and welcome one another. Now, these disagreements that are happening uh, in the churches in Rome over diets and days has to do with the fact that Early on in the development of the churches in Rome, they were very heavily Jewish. These were Jewish converts. These were people who grew up uh, in the Jewish setting. They grew up going to synagogue. They grew up going to temple if they lived uh, close enough to to travel for the different feasts throughout the year. As a result, the church had an extremely Jewish flavor theologically but also culturally. And what happened was, because there was a lot of infighting among Jews, not just 
specifically Jews within the church, but really between Jews who were outside of the church with Jews who were inside of the church. Because of this infighting, the Jews got exiled from Rome. Now, what did that do? Well, that left these churches with people who had come to know Christ as Gentiles. People who did not grow up going to synagogue. People who did not grow up going to the temple. People who did not grow up following the law. People who did not grow up with the dietary laws of the Old Covenant. Now what happened was, during this time of exile, the churches in Rome went from being predominantly Jewish in flavor to predominantly Gentile in flavor. And then the Jewish believers started returning to Rome. They started returning to their churches. And guess what happened? Well, hold up. Y'all done gone and changed everything. What, what about the food laws? Why, why are we having bacon at the potluck? By the way, because of Easter. Praise the Lord, Right? But why? Why are we eating these things? We don't eat these things. God has told us not to eat these things, and if we want to love and honor him, we won't eat them. Now, what I'm trying to help you to see is this. The disagreement over food here in Romans is not the same as the disagreements over food in 1 Corinthians. The disagreement over food in 1 Corinthians is about people who had grown up Gentile uh, who, when they come to know Jesus Christ, they feel okay going to the market and buying meat for their family to have for food, but meat, because of the, the, the culture in Corinth, meat had, that had first been sacrificed to an idol in order for the vendor to be able to then sell it to the public. All right? That's a different issue about food. This issue about food is, how are we supposed to honor the Lord with our eating? Not, can I eat this thing over here, but what does God require of us? And the issue is, at this time in the history of the church, this time in the history of redemption, we were in a transitional period. Acts chapter 10, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, you have Peter who goes up onto the roof to pray. And as he goes up onto the roof to pray, the Lord gives him a vision where this, this huge, I think, tablecloth comes floating down and there are all these different forms of barbecue on it. Things that the old covenant law did not allow the Jews to eat. Things, animals, that God had said, honor me by not eating them. And then he says to Peter, eat. What had happened? The old covenant dietary laws had been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And the old covenant dietary laws were no longer binding for the people of God as a way of honoring him in their eating. What we are told in Acts 10 is we now can honor the Lord in eating barbecue, in eating bacon. 
within reason, I've been told. Right? That's what's going on here. There were Jewish believers who had grown up Jewish that it was very difficult for them to even embrace the idea of eating barbecue, let alone eating it to the glory of God. And you have Gentiles believers going, what's the big deal? Right? Do you see the conflict? I'm going to honor the Lord by eating according to the old covenant dietary laws. The other person saying, I'm going to honor the Lord by eating some bacon. I'm going to prove that I really embrace the resurrection by eating this. I really believe in the resurrection. Okay? This is about, this is not about, when we talk about weak and strong here, okay? What we are not talking about is that one person's mature, one person's immature. We're not talking about one person is sinful, the other person is not sinful. What we're talking about, you have two different people who want to honor the Lord with how they eat. And some doing it according to what had been in place in their own lives and in the history of their people for generation after generation and inscribed in the Old Covenant. For others, it was, well, I'm in Christ. I'm not a Jew. I wasn't raised a Jew. Okay? Now, what this, 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 this disagreement didn't fall along just along Jewish-Gentile lines, but you get the idea. You had two cultures that had come together in those who had come to new life in Jesus Christ, and they're disagreeing over how to honor the Lord with eating. They're also disagreeing with how to honor the Lord over days, right? Diet and days. This has to do with calendar. As believers in Jesus Christ, as a Gentile believer in Jesus Christ, am I required to continue to, to live according to the old covenant uh, calendar? Am I called to continue to uphold those feasts and those Sabbath celebrations that you see in the Old Covenant? Am I still required, for example, to celebrate Pentecost? Am I still required to celebrate Passover? Am I still required to celebrate the Feast of Booths, right? Am I still required to remove leaven from my house leading up to Pesach? What does the Lord require? And you had some who had grown up Jewish that were like, of course, we keep doing these things. And by the way, look in the book of Acts. You find the apostles continuing to do those things. You see them going to temple. You see them going to synagogue. You see, in fact, Paul gets arrested. When he returns from being away, he gets arrested where? In the temple, because upon returning, he was going to the temple to offer a vow unto the Lord. And he had a Gentile believer with him. Let's arrest him. Let's arrest Paul. He's, he's messing up the temple by bringing this Gentile. It was a time of transition within redemptive history. At the time in which this is being written, all right, the temple in Jerusalem is still standing. It's not 70 AD yet. The Romans haven't come in and raised the temple to the ground. 
Every day at the temple at this time, sacrifice is still being honored, uh, being offered. The priest, old covenant priesthood, is still doing their thing. What you read about in Hebrews, that's still going on at this time. And so there is some confusion and disagreement of what does it look for us, look like for us to honor the Lord in the way we eat and how we carry out the calendar. Do I, am I bound to old covenant things or am I free to them? And there's disagreements over how to deal with that. Now, let me boil that down a little bit further. What they're disagreeing over is this. I think the Lord wants us to fill in the blank. And another person saying, no, I think the Lord wants us to honor him by doing this other thing. And what's happening is the church is the two are looking at one another and going, you don't care about Jesus. That's what's going on here. They're questioning one another. They're judging one another. They're trying to understand, you know, getting into the motives of one another. And what is boiled down to is that one is questioning the other as to whether or not they are actually devoted to Christ. Does that sound familiar at all? I think the Lord wants us to honor him by loving our neighbor by wearing a mask. I think the Lord wants us to honor him by standing for liberty and freedom. What do we do? And guess what? There is no easy answer to that. And I have flip-flopped back and forth myself a hundred dozen times. And this is going on with one issue after another right now. And so what Paul is trying to help us to see is that if we are going to be a people of the covenant of grace, this is not the way that we deal with differences that come from two different people or multiple different persons disagreeing over how to be faithful to Christ. Is this feeling familiar? And what he is certainly suggesting here is that we are not to separate over this, but instead we are to genuinely welcome and receive one another. Believe it or not, Jesus Christ, through the Apostle Paul, is saying that churches in America should have, or at least be able to have, Republicans and Democrats loving one another within the same body of Jesus Christ. Let's get more personal. Georgia and Alabama fans. Ohio State and Michigan. Oof. Right? And so how do we do this? Well, basically what he says is we have to constantly be embracing and experiencing the grace of God and Jesus Christ for ourselves so that we can embody and extend that grace to others. And what he's, the way that he says it is here is be welcoming 
And he says, welcome one another in a way that reflects how God has welcomed you in Jesus Christ. Everyone in this room is a sinner. Everyone in this room has been born under the curse of Adam. And everyone in this room could never have any standing with God other than separation and condemnation unless God in Jesus Christ had initiated to do something to fix that issue. And that's what he did in Christ. And what he has done is God has pursued us to receive us to himself, not because we lived up to his standards, not because we honored him perfectly according to his law, not because we honored him even a percentage of the law, but because he loved us enough to die for us, to bring us to himself. And now he says, you do likewise. God could so easily just say, you don't really love me. You don't really love me. You don't really love me. Get away from me. He doesn't. And what Paul says is, so if he doesn't, why on earth do you think you get to do that to someone that he has received? You see, the bottom line is this. When we start judging one another, when we start condemning one another, when we start looking down on one another, when we start questioning one another's allegiances, when we start questioning one another's faithfulness, when we're doing these things, what we are doing is this. We are contradicting what, the, what God has instead judged about that person. God has said, that person is mine. I give him my righteousness and I fully receive him as my son or my daughter. And what we do is we come along and say, "Mm -mm -mm, God, I don't know if you're really aware of their position on this thing. See, we're exercising an authority over someone that we don't have the authority to exercise because that authority alone belongs to God. And we do this with one another. And it doesn't have to be the big things, right? It doesn't have to be the big things. I can't believe that he wore that shirt to church. And go from there. It can be anything. And one of the things I want to to help you understand is I understand that a lot of times that the place and the motivation that that comes from is that you want to honor the Lord and you want this other person to be honoring the Lord and you're concerned that they're not honoring the Lord. I get it. This doesn't come from evil, wicked hearts. It comes from a heart that longs to respect God and and longs to glorify Him and you want to see the people around you glorifying Him too. I get it. The problem is, in this good desire that we have so often and frequently, we completely misapply what we are attempting to do. And we judge, and we look down, we condemn, and we separate from one another. And you get this church that has these distinctives and you get this church that has this, this, these distinctives and we're the church of this, we're the homeschool church, we're this church, we're that church. And what happens is the churches in America are getting filtered and boiled down to a group of people who have shared interests in cultural things that we are calling unity in Jesus Christ. We have to acknowledge that when we are doing this with someone, We're doing it with someone that we do not have the right to do it because they belong to God. And look what the Bible says. God will make that person stand 
It's not your responsibility to make them stand. God will do it. He has received them. He has welcomed them. He is maturing them. He will take care of them. He will guide them. He will sanctify them. He will make that person stand. It's not up to you. It is not up to me. Even though sometimes I really wish it was up to me. He says, God has welcomed him. Don't get on to someone that doesn't belong to you. Don't exercise authority that's not yours to exercise. He says, this person is trying to honor the Lord. Yeah, this person may be mistaken about missing the transition from the old covenant to the new covenant with Jesus Christ. Well, guess what? He's trying to honor me. So encourage him. Don't discourage. Encourage. He says, by the way, you need to focus on yourself. The very last line, notice what he, what he says here in the text. So then, each of us will have to give an account of himself to the Lord. And, and what Paul is suggesting is that should be higher up on your priority list than someone else. This, all right, so I just want, he says it. I didn't say it. He said it. He said it clearly. He said it without equivocation. And what we have to understand is the reason it's difficult for us to embrace this is because we ourselves have so many motivations that are going on within us that we don't see or understand in ourselves. And so therefore, it gets easier to do what? Look at the flaws and shortcomings of that person than to try to understand myself. And beloved, every one of us are motivated by selfishness, pride, self-righteousness, insecurity, jealousy, self-pity, prejudice, unforgiveness, and I could keep going down the list. And so often what happens is you are being motivated by one of those things, but you're telling yourself, I love this person and I want the best thing for him. So I'm going to argue. And I'm going to condemn. And I'm going to come down on him. And I'm going to bully him into understanding the right way to love Jesus. So what do we do instead? What Paul says is this. If we're ambassadors of grace called to gracious living, then that has to be manifest through what we call a judgment of charity. A judgment of charity. Now, this does not mean, okay, a judgment of charity does not mean that we go along to get along. A judgment of charity doesn't mean that we don't have opinions based on the scripture about these issues. It doesn't mean that we aren't allowed to discuss and even disagree. It doesn't mean that, that we don't care if someone is living an outright sin and think, oh, well, bless his heart, right? And become indifferent to it. There's a whole lot of what a judgment of charity does not mean. But what it does mean is that I learn to view this person in light of this person's profession of faith in Jesus Christ. 
And so I relate to this person as someone who has the exact same level of righteousness that I have. Not a righteousness that has come from him, not a righteousness that has come from me, a righteousness that has been equally granted by Jesus Christ. Do you, do you realize that? Believe it or not, some of you really good people in here, I have the same amount of righteousness that you have. It's hard to believe. But it's true. But not because of you and not because of me, but because of Christ. What that means is I have to cultivate within myself a very purposeful decision that when I interact with you, I interact with you as one who has the same level of righteousness. And when you interact with me, and this is the bigger act of faith, you do the same. That our starting point with one another is that we are unified in Christ. Not that we have to create unity. We are unified. We have the same level of righteousness because we have the same standing in Christ. And you and I share the same master. And so my job in a judgment of charity is not to become your master. My job is to encourage you to look to your master. And that will involve, at times, having a discussion on how to honor Jesus Christ in a cultural situation where there's not a black and white answer, and we discuss, and we disagree, and we encourage each other to continue to pursue Christ. But we do so not as one who is condemning the other because I have the truth and they don't, but because we are sharing the same pursuit. Proverbs tells us very clearly, iron sharpens iron. That means there's going to be friction. But we don't respond to the friction by questioning motives. We don't respond to the question by questioning someone's devotion to Christ. We don't respond to the friction by just assuming, well, they're just so worldly. We respond to the friction by remembering, I have to give an account of me in Christ. And so how do I manifest my faith that I am in Christ in the way that I respond in this disagreement? See how that works? I focused on me and not on you. Now, I did it here. Now, if we're actually discussing, I'll be focusing on you. I'll just con- I'll, I'll confess. And just let me know when I've done it so that I can confess again. I try. And I know you try. But the reality is, we still struggle. That's why Paul had to tell the Galatians, you're called to freedom, but that freedom is not to be used for yourself. Your freedom is to be used for another. What we have inherited from our first parents in Adam and Eve is the inherent desire to serve ourselves. And what Jesus Christ is breaking in us and reforming in us is the desire for us to serve ourselves. And so you're going to keep doing it, and I'm going to keep doing it. What we can do, though, is try to cultivate ahead of time a judgment of charity that I'm going to look at you always as one who is in Christ, 
and then I'm going to talk to you, at least attempt to talk to you as one who is in Jesus Christ. And when we disagree, I'm going to argue with you as one who is in Jesus Christ, which means we're going to talk about the substance of the disagreement and not each other's character. We're not going to talk about what we think is motivating the other person. We're going to talk about the substance of the disagreement, and we're going to do so as those who have an equal standing in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that is such a key component here, because so often in these kinds of settings, what we want to do is we want to remind each other, well, we're both equally sinners. And that's true. But you are also equally righteous. And so I don't want to encourage you to remember that you're equally a sinner. I want to encourage you to remember that you're equally righteous so that you won't make excuse for the sin, but instead you will strive to reflect the righteousness that you have been granted. We have to exercise a judgment of charity. This doesn't mean that we're going to agree on everything. This doesn't mean that we excuse sin. But what it does mean is when we have a disagreement, we are going to truly and genuinely welcome and receive one another and discuss it as those with a shared life in Christ rather than to try to push each other away or create a litmus test for the other person so that I can know whether or not to truly receive and welcome. When Christy and I first went to the church on Lookout Mountain, which had every weird reformed subculture existing within it. They had become a church that had defined themselves by really weird distinctives. And I'm not even going to say distinctives that weren't biblical. I'm just going to say they truly believed that the Bible taught the distinctives that they held. The result of that, however, was that when we visited the church, we could tell that the hand was going out, right? But we were being looked at to know, do they know the secret handshake? And we could tell that when visitors would visit our church on Sunday and, and people would go to greet them, we could tell that our folks were greeting them doing the same thing, extending the hand, but it was, do they know the secret handshake? And if it was perceived that they didn't, the response was, well, let's bring them in so that we can fix them and so that we can control them. Beloved, what God calls us to do in Jesus Christ is to reflect his genuine welcome and reception and for us to throw our arms open to one another genuinely without putting a litmus test of do they hold the same doctrine on transubstantiationism? Do they hold the, the same doctrine on whether or not God's grace was offered before the fall? Or was it only law? Whether or not they, they hold, you know, where did God's election uh, come out in the process of the unfolding of creation history? Was it before the fall? Was it after the fall? Right? We start nitpicking and getting into, right, trying to figure out how many angels are dancing on the head of a needle. But if that's what you become focused on, that will become a litmus test for you. 
And so one of the things I want to point out that in every one of these sermons that we have looked at about the significance of our name, Grace Covenant, I have not once emphasized one of the distinctive Reformed doctrines as to how we understand ourselves. It's not that we don't have them, because we do. And I hold them, as Paul says here, I hold them with with firm confidence that they're in the Bible. But the distinctives, those things that make us, you know, a little bit different than our brothers in Christ down the street, that is not what we want to be defining ourselves by, or it will lead to separation. It will lead to distrust. It will lead us to question whether or not they really love Jesus. Instead, let us focus on the heart of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ that we summarize in these beautiful words, grace, covenant, that God bound himself with a promise to pursue sinners and to grant them the fullness of his favor, not because of how they respond to him, but on the basis of him executing his love on their behalf and giving them everything that they need, and then truly welcoming them and receiving them as his children. That is the basis of our worship. That is the basis of our discipleship. That is the basis of our mission. We are a church about the covenant of grace. We are indeed Grace Covenant Church. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we need your help to live up to the beauty of the gospel that has been poured out on us so freely and so fully in Jesus Christ. And if I admit my own temptation, Lord, to argue about things, to care passionately about things that I think are very important and and to argue for them, but to do so in a way that actually contradicts who I am in Christ rather than promoting who Uh, Christ is to the person with whom I'm disagreeing. And so, Lord, help us to focus on who we are in your Son and help us to practice towards one another this, this welcoming, this reception that reflects what you have done for us in Jesus Christ so that if we can do this with one another within this room, Lord, you will help us to do this with our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ outside of this room. And if we can do that as the church then though those who are outside of your church who are languishing in sin and darkness out in the world, they will see your grace because they will see the way we love and welcome one another. And they will know in the depths of their hearts that they don't have that because of their own rebellion against you. And so, Lord, help us not to push people away in the ways that we think we are striving to defend your honor and to promote your glory. Instead, help us to do those things in a way that shows forth your honor and reveals your glory. Honor and glory that is patient and kind and giving and genuine. Fill us with your grace that we might be that grace to your world. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.